Hi, guys. It's our last one tonight. I know. I can't believe it. It's already almost Thanksgiving. It's craziness. Alrighty, welcome back to Russia Christie Community Night, we, where we provide a space for sharing doubts, asking questions, and generally turning the church dynamic on its head by inviting the audience to scrutinize the speaker as well as their content openly and in real time in front of everyone else, as opposed to sitting quietly and feeling that perhaps your concerns about the reliability of the Bible, um, whether or not God even exists in the first place, or could it really be true that Christ actually conquered death? These things being what folks often imagine are types of concerns that are unwelcome in church. But there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Not only are they welcome, but they're expected. You see, if you're actually paying attention and you're really listening to the claims that this book makes, the Bible, the rational response to the scriptures, is something along the lines of, now hold on a minute here. Because what this book claims is that not only that it accurately reflects the reality you and I face every single day, but it also claims to be the exclusive answer to our reality. And what that exclusivity means is that ultimately, it doesn't matter how sincere your belief in an alternative is. If this book is actually true, and if our belief is not couched in what is written here, then the conclusion is that our belief, in spite of our sincerity, is sincerely wrong. And the God that Christianity teaches is aware that that's a tall order. Not only does this God invite us to reason with him, he reminds us that truth does not flee from scrutiny. And he's been gracious enough to demonstrate how serious he is about us understanding this by writing down what we need to know over the course of roughly 2,000 years, over three continents, and through 40 different authors. One God outlining one shared reality for the human predicament and providing one shared solution to that predicament. The predicament that is what makes all men equal. And that's six feet of dirt. You and I are going to die. And we don't need religion to tell us that. We feel that knowledge every day. We're reminded with every ache that wasn't present the day before and with every laugh line on our face and with every gray hair that sprouts. And the result of this knowledge is that as time passes, the question that persists on getting louder and louder in the back of our minds is who am I and what is my significance? And as we look back over the course of our life, we begin to assess ourselves. Am I where I thought I would be? Have I accomplished the things I desired? Am I on track to reach my goals? Am I adulting well? Have I wasted any time? Do I wish it was different? And as we should expect, the world's religions have different answers and solutions to this problem. Atheism says there is nothing else, nothing more to be concerned about. You were a cosmic accident to begin with. Your presence on earth has no greater purpose than that. And when you die, that's it. There's nothing else to discuss, no eternity, no hope. You're no more significant in your life than the squirrel in the tree outside your office window or the overripe bananas at Kroger. As one atheist philosopher so colorfully puts it, you are no more 
than slime mold. Nice. And so your death is as insignificant as the pink gunk you clean out of your shower drain. If you're one of the 22% of the world's population of Hindus and Buddhists worldwide, you offer an alternative end. Eternity is a wheel of reincarnations, and how you behave during life accumulates eternal consequences called karma, the likes of which determines where on the wheel you're born again. Death is inevitable, and it will inevitably come to you over and over and over again, forever. And the only hope you have to escape death upon death upon death upon death is to achieve nirvana, where you enter nothingness and are absorbed into the ether, an achievement that no known humans have ever made. Only avatars of different deities. A wheel that even the most holy representative of this class of re religions cannot escape himself, the Dalai Lama. So your hope is that perhaps you'll be the first. Perhaps. But who knows how many times you've been round the wheel before and what iteration you're in right now. Who are you? You're a player in a gambit out of which there has yet to be an escape. What's your significance? None whatsoever. By contrast, Christianity answers the question, who am I? And what is my significance by pointing away from the questioner and onto the creator? You're the image of the living God. And in so being, your significance is of eternal value. This life here is only for a moment, and you weren't created to be here forever. The very fact that you look around you and wonder to yourself, what is my significance here, is because you realize that there is nothing here that satisfies your question. And this is because you weren't made for here. What satisfies your question is not part of this world, but is rather what dwells outside of this world. And it's here where Christianity really gets deep because it says your questions are excellent, but they're incomplete. The question, who am I and what is my significance, is a question concerned with what you're made of. It's why atheism answers them the way it does. It's why Buddhism and Hinduism answers them the way they do. But the deeper issue that is plaguing you as time clicks by, is not to look inward and focus on personal significance or what am I made of. The more accurate question is to focus your attention out there and ask, what was I made for? You see, Christianity says that we have been appointed to die only once, and after that to face judgment, a death that does not return us to a new body in another life cycle, as in the Eastern traditions. A death that's not total, like in atheism, but is instead only physical. And for believers, will only be a temporary physical death. Because mankind was made for a relationship with God. You were made with the express purpose to experience joy for all of eternity. You were made for and by love. Capital L, love not the carnal, materialistic, superficial, cheap substitute we try to pass off as love. True love, divine love, the only thing that satisfies our deepest longings. That God-shaped hole we try, to desperately, uh, we try desperately to fill with other things here on earth, hoping that they will quench the thirst that keeps us awake at night. 
the satisfaction that we teach will not come in total until we're back home with whom and for whom we were made. Which means for Christianity, we have a unique situation when it comes to the issue of our dying. We have one chance to get it right, and the repercussions of our lives here on earth, prior to death, ought not therefore to be taken lightly. After all, if the atheists are correct, who cares how we live this life? Ultimately, our lives are completely meaningless, as Richard Dawkins so articulately puts it. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If you choose atheism, you have no hope. And if the Hindus and Buddhists are correct, then it doesn't matter how you live this life, because in the end, you'll be recycled. And you'll be stuck here in this world in whatever form you find yourself in forever. That is, until you stumble into accidental oblivion. Maybe. Maybe not. You're stuck here in any case. As the Dalai Lama tries to comfort the panic of his followers in this, he says, from a Buddhist point of view, the actual experience of death is very important, although how or where we will be reborn is generally dependent on karmic forces. Our state of mind at the time of death can influence the quality of our next rebirth. So at the moment of death, in spite of the great variety of karmas we've accumulated, if we make a special effort to generate a virtuous state of mind, we may strengthen and activate a virtuous karma and so bring about a happy rebirth. So let's try and think happy thoughts as we careen towards cyclical death and permanent suffering into a world in which there's no escape, shall we? Because if you choose this path, your only hope is yourself. But if the Christians are correct, then your highest priority is in whom you place your life while you're here on earth. Because in the end, there will only be two classes of people, and you personally will only be classified once when you die. There will be those who place their lives into the hands of the infinitely perfect and long-awaited Savior of the universe, Jesus Christ, and whom we were originally designed to enjoy eternity with. Our God and Creator, who promises that in so doing our trust in His capability will remove all the pain and heartache that we have come to experience here on earth, that we've broken, juxtaposed against the alternative category, which is reserved for those who've chosen to leave their lives in their own hands. So it behooves us, loved ones, to determine who is accurate about our end. Because as everyone knows, no matter what religion they've been persuaded by, we're going to die. No matter what you think is the best way of looking at the world, our lives, in the end, you're betting your life on that position. And eternity is an awfully long time to have to settle that bet. But Anna, didn't you say in passing just a minute ago that for the folks who entrust their lives to Jesus, the believers in Christianity, that their physical death was temporary? What was that all about? Well, yeah, Christianity teaches that physical death is a temporary gig. Your body will be resurrected in a glorified form just like Jesus's was. Our original design prior to us having mucked the world up was to live forever as both physical and spiritual beings. 
Physical death came to mankind when the world turned away from our creator. Death is not part of our design. Physical death is a punitive consequence of sin. The reason why, for example, in general, human beings are so unnerved by death is because we recognize in our heart of hearts that it is foreign to our design. And the pressing anxieties we experience as time slips away is due to our knowledge that there exists an eternal soul. The part of us that lives on in eternity when, when our experience therein is contingent upon whether or not God stepped in and carried us where we could not carry ourselves. And the great comfort that the God of the Christians offers to the world is not hopelessness or happy thoughts. It's resurrection. You'll be freed from the suffering and injustice and pain of this world. You'll be freed to step into an eternity of unfathomable joy. And not only that, but when you welcome God's offer into your life to reorient your heart back toward him, the suffering and pain we experience while we're waiting to get called home suddenly turns into an even more intense focus on what's to come. You know that feeling, that wonderful anticipatory excitement, the conscious dwelling on a subject that relieves us of our immediate circumstances and onto something better that is to come. And as it turns out in Christianity, you see that when you aim at heaven, you end up getting the earth thrown in. When Christ enters your heart and turns it the right way around, he indwells you with the love for which we were designed. In so doing, what he does is you, turn you and your work days into Sabbath rest. The very food you consume becomes a sacrament. Your home begins turning into a temple dedicated to his word. The earth that you experience while you're here, in spite of the pain and in spite of the suffering, becomes the constant reminder of the heaven to come. As C.S. Lewis put it, to every soul, God will look like its first love because he is its first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. The fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is our evidence that heaven must be our home. And as he points out elsewhere, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. Why? Because of the evidence that Jesus Christ gave, that he really is the answer to the predicament. Because after Christ died, he was physically resurrected. Think through this with me. It doesn't matter if you're already a Christian or if you're somehow someone who's only considering Christianity. You're sensible people. You're more than capable of following this line of reasoning. If everything we have been studying this semester up until this point is true, that Jesus actually fulfills every aspect of what needs to be present in order for him to be capable of taking upon himself the sin of the world, that he was a real person, or that he was a real person documented by Christian and non-Christian historians alike, and that his death was the final and permanent sacrifice for the redemption of mankind, then it follows that a physical resurrection must occur. Why? Because if he was completely and totally fulfilled 
and God's promise to save us and bridge the gap between God and man, then the result of his actions will be the undoing of the punitive consequence of our separation, the consequence of physical death. And what is the undoing of physical death? Physical resurrection. Physical resurrection is a necessary attribute to Christ's claim to be our Messiah. This is why the New Testament authors are adamant about telling the story. And they don't simply tell the story like, wow, what a miracle. But what they do is they go on to emphasize, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. Let me show you. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, if we're found to be false witnesses about God, or moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God and he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The word of the Lord. No Anglicans in here? Just checking. Just checking. You're supposed to say thanks be to God if you're an Anglican. Sorry, I'm just checking. Jesus's physical resurrection is the proof we have that he was telling the truth about redeeming us. Up until that point, the evidence that he gave that he was the real deal was through miracles. He made the claim that he was God in flesh, and then he would demonstrate that this was true by giving evidence of abilities to perform tasks that only God had the power to perform. Things like calming storms walking on water, the resur and resurrecting others. But it wasn't until his own physical resurrection that we received the evidence that he had solved our predicament permanently, that he had vanquished death itself. Only then did we receive our evidence that he had actually accomplished what he had set out to do. This is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is considered the quintessential point of Christian theology. Without it, we're not saved. Without it, there is no Christianity. There is no hope, and you are completely wasting your time spending Sunday nights with me. But Anna, there are other religions that talk about Jesus Christ positively and even include him in some of their teachings. Islam, for example, points this out regularly. 
Hinduism readily teaches that Jesus was an avatar of Krishna. And we even have video footage of the Dalai Lama himself blessing a t-shirt that says Jesus loves you. Well, yeah, you're right about that. But my Hindu and Buddhist friends believe that Christ died but did not resurrect. And my Muslim friends believe he neither died nor resurrected. But Christianity teaches that Christ both died and resurrected from the dead. And those three scenarios cannot all simultaneously be true. Which means now that we've dealt with the theological necessity of the details of the Christ story, we have to move on into the historical details of why this evidence is so compelling to those who first encounter this in the modern era. We've already spent two full hours covering the trustworthy nature of this book. So I'm not gonna go back over that right now. Okay, we talked about its internal purity and the miraculous way in which this book comes together from a critical scholarship perspective. Remember that if you need to review this material, everything is available for you to do that for free. And we have every intention of repeating it for those who missed it the first time. But what's so incredible about the resurrection story, which we're covering tonight, is that it's not only the internal evidence of, the, of this text, what we find about the resurrection here, but it's also what happens in the historical world outside of the testimony of the eyewitnesses found in the scriptures. Because as it turns out, major changes occurred in the Roman Empire immediately following the death of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's step out of the Bible and check out history. This is the Nazareth inscription. It dates to the time of Tiberius Caesar and Claudius, the emperor's reigning at the very beginning of Christianity, both through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as well as into the book of Acts prior to the reign of Nero. The reason it's so interesting is because it's an imperial edict translated from Latin into Koine Greek, the language used to write the New Testament. And it seems that the emperor felt compelled to do this because a clarification needed to be made regarding Roman laws against grave robbing. Up until this point in history, there apparently didn't need to be any clarifications made because grave robbers were concerned with the valuables buried with the dead. If you were caught in possession of a dead person's grave goods, you were in serious trouble. But as this edict clarifies further, anyone found having moved destroyed, or extracted a body from their grave was to suffer capital punishment for having violated the edict. Here's what it says. Edict of Caesar. It is my decision concerning graves and tombs, whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulcher ceiling stones, against such a person I order that a judicial tribunal be created just as is done concerning the gods and human religious observances. Even more so will it be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed you are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. But if someone does, I wish that violator to suffer capital punishment under the title of tomb breaker. A new law. It would seem that something had occurred at some point 
during the first half of the first century that would require Roman law to be altered to include punishment for those responsible for once occupied but now empty tombs. And it's no small happenstance because there were perfectly capable governors overseeing the different parts of the Roman Empire. But this edict comes straight from the emperor himself and translated into a language he usually didn't issue edicts in. I wonder what all the hullabaloo's about. Moving on to a man named Yosef ben Mariahu, who was the head of the Jewish forces in Galilee during the first Jewish uprising against Rome, led by Emperor Vespasian. After a six-week siege, he surrendered himself in the year 67 CE and returned for being granted Roman citizenship for his defection. He proceeded to become court historian of Jewish history, documenting the war and the incidents leading up to the uprisings that caused the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He also took on a Roman name that appears on both of his most important works, the Jewish War and the Antiquities of the Jews. And that name is Titus Flavius Josephus. What is important for you to remember here is that Josephus remained staunchly Jewish and in effect an enemy of early Christianity his entire life. Yet, here's what's documented in Book 18, Chapter 3.3 of the Antiquities of the Jews. Incidentally, even the enemies of Christianity, contemporary with the disciples themselves, were aware of what was happening. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Moving on yet again to a Roman historian this time, a senator by the name of Gaius Cornelius Tacitus, another contemporary of Jesus' disciples, whose principal task was to document the history of the emperors, in particular the reign of Nero, the emperor responsible for having beheaded the apostle Paul and crucifying Peter upside down. In book 15, chapter four of Tacitus' Annals, he pauses for six pages to cover the great fire of Rome, which was responsible for having burned most of the city in 64 CE. And it is in this section that we find this passage. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. 
Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. We've covered archaeology, Jewish, Roman, now let's do Greek, right? Because if that's not enough, we need to take a look at Lucian, whose work regularly satirized public figures within the Roman Empire, um, especially the ones that he didn't care for. He writes about one popular philosopher, Proteus, who was a contemporary of the Apostle John and spent much of his youth among the Christian community in Palestine. And although Lucian openly opposed Christianity himself, he writes this in order to explain the people to which he was referring in his book. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they're all brothers from the moment that they're converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike regarding them merely as common property. We have a lot to cover tonight, so I'm gonna stop there. There are several more examples out there for you, but I think for now, you're getting the point that the historicity of Jesus, his claims, his death, his resurrection, and the consequent reaction by his followers is not in any way, shape, or form exclusive to the Bible. And that's certainly not to say that we need extra biblical evidence for these things. Certainly for corroborating internally consistent eyewitness testimonies regarding the Jesus story is ample evidence enough to establish credibility. But in this day and age, the world has a tendency to react to the content of the Bible by trying to set it outside of the realm of history, something that both Christian and non-Christian scholars alike have been trying to correct. You cannot toss out historical records on the basis that the content offends you. For example, atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann admits, he used to be a professor at Vanderbilt for a minute, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This is an atheist. Historians across the board employ a number of common sense principles in determining the strength of a testimony. These include testimony attested to by multiple independent witnesses is usually considered stronger than the testimony of one witness. We have seven separate historical eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ who physically wrote down the results of their experiences. If you count the hundreds of other eyewitnesses that are documented in the Bible who were later tortured and murdered over the fact that they would not deny their testimony in the years immediately following the resurrection, that number becomes innumerable. Between the reigns of Nero and Diocletian, Eusebius documents that these numbers ran into the 4,000 range, but that he couldn't be certain that it wasn't higher. 
Another example, affirmation by a neutral or hostile source is usually considered stronger than affirmation from a friendly source, since bias in favor of the person or position is absent. And as I've just demonstrated, we have several enemies of Christianity documenting these things as historical fact. Not only that, but the testimonies in here also document that the Sanhedrin's response, the guys who were responsible for crucifying Jesus, their response was immediate to the empty tomb, and they didn't deny it, something that could be easily disproven if it wasn't the case. But rather, they began teaching that the reason there was an empty tomb must be because the body had been stolen, in spite of the fact that Pilate placed an armed guard at Jesus' tomb, guards who faced the death penalty for falling asleep at their post. And then he publicly sealed it to keep that very thing from happening. Notice what they do. They assume an empty tomb as a problem that they have to solve. Meaning, they had an empty tomb as a problem they had to solve. Another example. People usually don't make up details regarding a story that would tend to weaken their position. The eyewitness testimony to the events that transpired agree that the individuals to first discover that the tomb was empty were all women. At this point in history, the testimony of women was considered non-credible by the simple virtue of the fact that there was a female espousing it. So if we're gonna say, for example, that perhaps all these people in here made up the story, then why is it that they would include in their made up story that the most crucial an incredible climax of the events that transpires, that the entire thing relies upon testimony that at this point in history would have been rejected immediately. Why not say Peter was there first, if you're gonna lie? Or James, Jesus' brother. But in fact, in this case, and as scholars agree, in the case of historical investigation, when details are included in a testimony that shed a poor light or seem to weaken the believability of the story, those details are often considered the most certain to be true. In apologetics, we use an acronym to remember all these things. It's called JET. The J stands for the Jerusalem factor, meaning that as the early Christians began preaching what they witnessed after Jesus' resurrection, it would have been extremely easy to falsify the claims that were being made. It's very easy to walk to Jesus' tomb and point out that the body's still there if, for example, you're gonna accuse them of hallucinating. Or to walk to the trash pit to see if the body had been thrown there, if you're gonna accuse them of stealing it. Or for there to have been witnesses to a grown man's body being carried off in the night after he died. Considering that Jesus died the night before Passover, a bunch of Jews breaking Sabbath and arguably the most important Jewish festival of all time, while carrying a dead body, would have been extremely conspicuous. Not only that, but it would have been very simple for the Roman guards stationed at the tomb to report what had occurred if they had been attacked or paid off. They didn't do that. The point being that if the body of Jesus had still been in the tomb where the public could simply walk over and point at it and say, nope, he's still dead, Christianity would never have survived in Jerusalem. The E stands for enemy attestation. This is one of the things that we've been focusing on tonight. When someone who's not personally invested in the reality of a testimony also brings evidence that backs up the original testimony, that testimony is considered of much higher value than even eyewitness testimony. 
when even the people who do not want something to be true admit the truth of the story, you may be fairly certain the story is an accurate accounting. The T is the other thing we've touched on tonight. It stands for the testimony of women. It is such an absurd thing to do in this time period to appeal to women as the chief witnesses of the greatest moment in Christian history. So much so that even the Gospel of Luke admits that the male disciples originally considered the women's report of an empty tomb as nonsense. Consider what God has done in the great picture here of time. Because now, of course, women's testimony is considered equal with men. But look at what God decided to do with his story. To entrust the entire thing to the very people who would have been rejected automatically. If you've ever wondered whether or not Christianity is a boys club, or whether or not women are valued by God, remember that he trusted the entire story to women. Given the disrespect that this point in the resurrection story would have carried at this point in history, it's far more likely that the gospel writers are telling the truth about how events transpired rather than trying to make up a convincing story about something that did not occur. And given these three, the Jerusalem factor, the testimony of the enemies of Christianity verifying the events, and all of this relying upon the initial reports of the women coming back from the empty tomb gives us every reason to believe that Jesus' resurrection did in fact occur. This is a rational conclusion. This is an evidence-based conclusion. This is not blind faith. Christians are not running around basing their belief in nothing. These are not, as Stephen Hawking put it to his students at Oxford, fairy stories for people afraid of the dark. Now, whether or not you are persuaded by the evidence we've covered thus far is an entirely different issue altogether. Remember that what I'm doing tonight is providing you with historical proof of the resurrection. Proof along the same lines as proving the historicity of Caesar crossing the Rubicon, or Alexander the Great having lived. And we have a hundred times more evidence for the events in this book than those two men combined, and yet you never hear critics of Christianity taking issue with the accounts of those two men's lives. Not only do we have sources or scores of hard evidence, both from Christian and non-Christian sources alike, but we also have modern scholarship, both Christian and non-Christian alike, agreeing that this was a historical event. But proof is different from persuasion. And as we know well, persuasion very often does not follow from proof. Why? How could it be that modern day, technologically savvy, hyper-intelligent individuals who are experts in their field, openly admitting that these things are historically accurate, not be the first folks to arrive at church on Sunday? How can someone affirm the resurrection of Jesus and walk away from the implications of that affirmation? The answer is, they were never interested in a savior to begin with. Why entrust your life to a Messiah who has demonstrated who he is if you deny that you even need a Messiah at all? Don't forget this distinction between proof and persuasion as we enter, excuse me, as we enter the Advent season and you spend your days with friends and family who you may be gearing up to face for that annual pick on the Christian tirade at the Thanksgiving table. Do not forget when you are told there's no proof for this stuff because the answer is, yes, there is proof. The person saying that has either never encountered it 
or having encountered it, wasn't convinced by it. And this happens all the time, and we need to be prepared to stay clear about these things, especially distinctions like this, so that we don't get all knotted up in our exasperation over communicating to those who ask us about our beliefs. It's our duty to remain calm and kind. But kindness doesn't mean spinelessness. You can and should remain steadfast in relating the things that we have studied here on nights like this. Remember that sometimes persuasion is just not going to happen in spite of the evidence. And it's in those moments that God is giving us the reminder that he's sovereign in all the things that we are dealing with and that we need to rely on him in prayer in the difficult moments when we just can't fathom how our loved ones are not tracking with us. All right, Anna, you've spent long enough making your point, but you said in your promo video that tonight was going to cover gory subjects, and so far, it's been rather tame. So let's get to the blood and guts already. What's all that about? Well, that's really the final piece to the puzzle here by way of evidence. Almost every single eyewitness to the resurrection was brutally murdered simply because they refused to recant of what they saw. The term martyr literally means witness or testimony. It's a legal term used by both Aristotle and Plato to refer to what happens in court. But just after Christ's resurrection, the term takes on a darker meaning for the first time in history to refer to those who under the penalty of death maintain their conviction of truth. And thus begins the history of the word martyrdom changing to carry a bloodier meaning. For upper-class Roman citizens refusing to deny Christ, the result was a swift beheading. For those who found themselves outside of this class, your end could be anything from being sent into an arena complete with hungry wild animals to be hunted and eaten as a spectacle for the entertainment of the public, or for a metal grate to be set above an open furnace upon which you would be grilled to death. Any number of creative ways to torture a human being were used on thousands of Christians to stop the spread of the story throughout Rome and the rest of the empire. As we saw earlier, Nero would impale Christians on stakes, set them alight, and use them as the torches needed to light his dinner parties. Of course, stoning and crucifixion were still used for mass executions, but if your executioner was feeling particularly motivated, you could be scourged and then deep fried to death in a basin of hot oil instead. There are accounts of bludgeoning and being thrown off of buildings. The apostle Simon was placed in a box and sawed in half vertically. And there's even the account of Bartholomew being flayed to death. Apparently, he maintained consciousness until all of his skin had been removed in strips before finally expiring. And all of this happening to people who received no financial gain for their testimony, no increase in power or prestige, no personal or familial accrual whatsoever. All not only willing to die, but also going through the torture and consequent death over the story of one man who claimed to be God, who rose again. Christianity is a rational set of beliefs based upon philosophy, history, science, and logic. It's not, nor has it ever been, a God of the gaps sort of faith, in spite of the fact that sometimes misguided individuals present it that way. There are differing ways to explain real occurrences, occurrences like empty tombs and dead people not staying dead. And if you will permit just a minute, 
I'm going to use my mentor's example to illustrate this. Imagine you walk into my house and observe a kettle boiling on my stove. And you ask me the question, why is the kettle whistling? The historical explanation is that previously, a kettle was purchased, filled with water, set on a burner, and the burner was turned on. The scientific explanation is that when molecules of water are heated, they become agitated, moving rapidly to and fro, and res the result of which is an exponential increase in pressure, resulting in the conversion of liquid to steam, which causes the valve on the kettle to whistle as it's been designed to relieve the pressure due to boiling. But the actual explanation for why the kettle is whistling is because I know it's cold outside and I love you and I'm making you a cup of tea. And it's the same at the level of the universe. God is not merely what we plug into history or science or philosophy when we don't know how else to explain things. God is the reason there are any types of explanations at all. And in this overwhelming care and love for his children, he has entered time in the person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of uniting all of our explanations for our reality in one moment of proof. Historically, there existed a man who was documented to have begun the largest religious movement that the world has ever known. The eyewitnesses to what occurred testified at the point of death that their testimony was true. Scientifically, our test subject, Jesus, was observed. The question was then asked, could he really be God, as he says he is? A hypothesis was then formed that if he is telling the truth, that he should be able to demonstrate the characteristics of God, for example, miracles. That predicted demonstration was repeated consistently over time, the result of which was the conclusion of a new hypothesis by his observers that he was in fact the Messiah that was promised. That's the scientific method. But the actual explanation for all of this is that God knows you're lost. He loves you more than you could ever fathom. And so he has made for you a way to come home. It is not now, nor has it ever been, that Christianity is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Christianity is the truth we tell people who have made up fairy stories to avoid the light. That's it. We've come to the end of our studies this year. Let's do one last round of Q&A. Do I need to put back up the picture of the flayed man? Are you good? Do you notice how quickly I got through them, just in case? Remember, if you have a question that has nothing to do with resurrection, that's okay. You can ask it. And I mean, who knows when the next one of these is going to be, so I'm never going to be available to you ever again. Like, let make sure that you ask. <laughs> make sure that you ask. He never became a Christian. But this quote up there said he was the Christ. Right? Proof is different than persuasion. So what I'm saying, and that's one of the big discussions about Josephus, is like, if you're willing to admit that, then how are you not a Christian? And they, I, I, the only thing I can say is they don't want him. He wasn't what they thought he was going to be. 
I mean, nobody was looking for, from the Jewish perspective, nobody was looking for the Jesus version we got. They were looking for a really amazing, you know, ready to go to battle. He was going to conquer Rome, and he was going to reestablish the temple. Not our Jesus, that the temple is the temple of his body, and that's what he was going to destroy and raise up. So I think perhaps there was some, some hard feelings. Thank you. I have read Josephus before, and, oh, I'm over here. Yes. yes, hello. So I've read him before, and in his accounts of Christianity, he mentioned John the Baptist way more than Jesus Christ. Yes. And so why is that the case? You know, I'm not sure. In fact, I don't know if it's way more, because I can only think of, I could be wrong, and you can correct me. I can only think of two instances for John the Baptist, and I can only think of two for Jesus. But... Um, he did focus on John the Baptist, and he focused on John the Baptist before he ever mentions Jesus. I suspect because John the Baptist was such a major player in Jerusalem, everybody knew who he was. By the time Jesus rolled up, nobody knew who he was until he started doing his miracles. John the Baptist, though, they thought he was Elijah, reincarnated, interestingly enough. So I think he had just garnered more attention than you would walking around in not but your towel and throwing locusts at people, so... That's, I mean, that's something that I would expect to see in a, such a small area. But that's just me talking. I'm not sure if I'm being accurate or not. These people were tortured so bad. Yeah. For believing in Jesus. Yes. Okay, and believing in the resurrection. Yes. Are we sure that, like, Pontius Pilate didn't make up stories that th say that these people said it just to make people afraid, you know, and make their stories up and torture them and say that they said this and this is how they believed and that's why we're doing this, to make the regular public, you know, his other public afraid of Of Christianity? Yeah. That they made up stories about the people who were tortured? Yeah. So No, not that they oh. were tortured, but made up the stories that these people said that, how do I put it? It's okay. These people said... Uh, I saw Jesus' resurrection. Mm -hmm. I believe in Jesus, you know, mm -hmm. but do, do, do they know that those people really said it mm -hmm. and, and crucified them for it, you know, tortured them for it? Mm -hmm. Or did they make say that the people said it so that they could torture them to make... Oh, I see. Other A lot of these affirmations that the people, the people following Jesus claiming to be Christians. A lot of their affirmations and inability to deny things were public. They were, they were featured publicly because at the time this was entertaining to kill people. The Roman Empire was not, you know, they didn't like hide executions. It was free entertainment. So for them to say multiple times, and I think even under like Diocletian's reign when it got really, really nasty where all you had to do was have your neighbor accuse you of being a Christian and you were, you were um, arrested. Um, even at that point in time, you were given, and Tacitus talks about this, I give them three chances publicly to recant before anything happens to them because I don't think, you know, they haven't actually broken any laws except for being Christian. And so I really don't think it's reasonable that we're killing this many people over this, although I'm going to abide by the law of the emperor. So yes, people knew that they were claiming the testimony they were. They weren't just going and being taken back into a dark room and then brought out in front of people to be like, well, they said they were Christians and now we're going to kill them. So now, do I know that for every single case? I do not. 
Um, I only know that with the cases that we have, like Blondina, for example, the vast majority of the apostles, um, they were so open about it. But even like the cases like St. Lawrence, the guy that was grilled, that was a public grilling, and he talked about Jesus' resurrection the entire time he died. So it was fairly obvious what the Christians were dying over. At least I'm, I'm confident in saying that based on the stories we have. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. his brother and not a cousin. Yeah, besides the scriptures? Yeah. Um, James is brought up in Josephus and says it's Jesus' brother. Pliny the Younger, I think, is the other one, but I'd have to verify. Because there are two places that come. Because the Catholics Well, then there are two James, remember. Yeah. Um, you said that the Roman Catholics don't believe that James was Jesus' brother? Stayed virgin, yeah, that's right. So you're talking about like the biological aspect. Yes, so they, they do, there's, there's not everybody. I have seen, I don't think I've seen Pope Francis tackle this one yet. But yeah, in Roman Catholicism, um, Mary remains a virgin, which means Jesus's siblings are not actually Jesus's siblings, which I get now what you're referencing. Yeah, Josephus is an example. Pretty sure it's Pliny the Younger. But I can find, if you email me, I can find it for sure and send it to you if you need it. Um, so uh, I just now remembered that all three of the people you were mentioning yes. that were doing secular mentions of Jesus Christ came Tacitus, after. Tacitus, Lucian, Josephus. Yes. Yeah. So all three of them, they came after Jesus's died. Like even Josephus was born in 37 yes, AD. Yes, correct. So how can they be considered valuable testaments for secular views of Jesus's historical accuracy. Um, as meaning like how, how is it that a historian can write on a history that they weren't there to witness personally? Yes. For the same reason that all of our history books exist. We have eyewitness testimony that historians are referencing as they tell the history. And with the case of Josephus, for example, and Tacitus and Lucian, there are eyewitnesses still alive, which means they're receiving that testimony. But I'll, I'll point out that it, I know of very few history books, except for maybe the most modern ones, that the historians who are documenting what happened actually lived through the, the events themselves. And I would say even more striking is how close these historians lived to the events themselves. I mean, that's, that's huge. I can think of, who is it? Dillard and Longman. I can't remember who the main, the main the few textbook, I'm sure. Do you go to public school? No, you, you have the massive history books wherever you go to school, right? Where you talk about, that's fine. Homeschool too, ancient Greek history, right? You have all the way through modern European history. The vast majority of those historians has, have never seen that stuff. I mean, you don't have to have personally lived through it in order to have accounts of it. That's hence the historical reliability argument. Does that help you? I can't tell if I've satisfied your question. I want to be able to say I have this epic historian that nobody can touch, but these, you know, I, I don't. But I have historians close to contemporaries of the very people who, who were there. And that, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big deal. I can't think of another case where that's applicable to other historical events. For example, World War II. Every single person who witnessed World War II in my family has already died 
yet World War II is one of my favorite things to study, and the historians that I have available giving me all that information also did not live through World War II. Does that make sense? Okay. To go off of that, roughly how many years was it between the Trojan War and when those writings happened? Do we It's a really good question. I have to look it up. I don't okay. know offhand. I can, though. That's why I have this up here. Let's see if I, if, I, if I can't find it fast enough, I'll have to look it up. So the modern dating says 1100 BC for the Trojan War. And the writings that we have detailing the Trojan War were when? Oh, goodness. Way later. Right. So with it being within 20, 30 years after the fact versus... Oh, no. Versus almost a millennia difference right. in time. Uh, over a millennia difference in time. And that's what we have on that history. Yeah, it always gets, it's, it gets hairy with, with ancient Greek history. That's why this book is so incredible. It is unlike anything that we have as far as ancient sources are concerned. And that's a good point. We already are. It's happened at every era in history. We're not here in the Americas. Um, well, I shouldn't say Americas. We're not here in America yet. Um, but yeah, beheadings, crucifixions, these are happening on a daily basis elsewhere in the world. We're just lucky. I hope it never happens here. Um, do I suspect it will? Yeah, I do. I think the pendulum will swing and will become less and less conservative when it comes to religious um, freedom. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm wrong. But every empire in history has done that, and I don't think that we're an exception. So that's why it's so important that we fight for religious freedom. Yeah, they do. So will they ever change the scriptures? I don't think so. And the reason why is because every single new manuscript that we find, and we have 24,000 of them right now in Greek, that's not counting the ones in Syriac Aramaic, um, that if you can count those languages, it increases up to over 56,000. And then you're right, we're finding more and more and more, especially in communist nations or pre previously communist nations. Um, when you lay these manuscripts side by side by side, they're internally pure, which means they haven't been altered. One of the questions we get all the time is, hasn't the Bible changed a whole bunch since the beginning to now? Um, and the answer is no. Well, how do you know that? Well, because we have the manuscripts. <laughs> and you can scan them or look at the scans yourself, digital scans, or you can actually physically hold some of them. And I bring multiple scrolls periodically here to this church so that you can see what I'm talking about. They haven't changed. It doesn't matter what century you look at all the way back. There are no changes. Um, the, the, the different iterations that we have are in like spellings of names, spellings of locations, um, misuse of grammar, like if you were to say a apple or instead of an apple, where it's very clear the content doesn't change. But there was a little oops from one of the scribes. And so you mark it and you move on. Um, so no, I don't think the scriptures will ever change. And the reason why I also think that is from a theological perspective, which is that God promises to preserve his word. Part of the reason why this matters, this book matters so much that we use it and we submit ourselves to it and that we study it and we meditate on it day and night is because this is what God has determined to give to us in order to tell the story. 
do I think the story will ever change? Nah, because the story doesn't change. It's exactly the same, and it'll be the same tomorrow. Yes, um, the persecution of the Christians I read was ended by Constantine, is that, and by a revelation that he had, and I was just wondering, is there any documentation about what kind of revelation it was? You're saying you read somewhere that there were, there's a written account of some of the martyrdom of Christianity and Constantine edited it? No, he ended it. He, I'm sorry, he what? He put an end to it. And ended church, it. And that, that's true. The age, of, the age of martyrdom, it's called the age of martyrdom. Okay. Um, we have the date for its ending as soon as Constantine comes to power because he, for the first time in history, Christianity becomes legal to practice. That hadn't been part of the Roman Empire at all because part of the reason why Christianity could not be legal was because it required that you never make sacrifices to the emperor. The Christians weren't willing to do that. So that's why some of this persecution got real intense real fast is because, well, all you need to do is put some incense in front of the statue of the emperor. You guys are cool with that, right? And the Christians go, no. <laughs> then all of a sudden there's a problem. They look obstinate. They look like they're breaking the law, and then you can build off of that. Constantine was the first person to say Christianity is completely legal. They do not need to make offerings to the emperor at all. And there's an argument whether or not he actually converted himself to Christianity because he uses a lot of Christian elements in how he reigns. So you're right, Constantine was the end of the age of martyrdom. It picks back up. There's persecution all over the world, but for the Roman Empire, it ended with Constantine until he passed and then it picked back up again. Okay. Hello. Um, I have a question that's kind of uh, different. <laughs> uh, how are you feeling these days? Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're down to one to two bouts of nausea a day, which for me is really great. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. I keep being told that uh, being really, really sick as a mama means you have a really, really healthy pregnancy, which I'm just, that's fine with me, if that's what that means. But thank you for asking. That's very kind. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> Are there only some of us predestined or elected? Mm -hmm. Because you read in the Bible some places that God knows those predestined. And mm -hmm. I mean, God knows everything. Mm -hmm. Is that what the Bible says, Sandy? I believe it is. Then it's true. We're going to do a, t a night, I'm fairly certain, because we've had enough questions about this. And you're right, I would be doing a massive disservice to that topic if I tried to just answer it, because there's no way that I can answer that question with the time that we have. Even if I were to take everything left with tonight, um, I could do serious theological damage to the people in this room just by being too quick. Um, we have been designing for quite some time now a night handling free will. I really am not sure when that's gonna happen, but that's in the works. Um, so kind of be on the lookout for that. But if this is something you wanna discuss with me personally, I am more than happy to take you out to lunch and we can, we can just have it out there. Um, is predestination an election in the Bible? Yes, it is. It, do we need to deal with that as Christians? Yes, we do. What does that mean? Well, that's something we need to discuss.
You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, those books, I saw that there were four different accounts of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. In the case of, there were varying numbers of women that saw Jesus resurrected, yep. as well as whether or not there were angels and how many angels there were, whether or not they were singing, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. So can you explain is, that further? Is that a contradiction? I yep. see that somewhat as a contradiction. Sure, sure. Yeah, Luke and Matthew somewhat agree. They're, they have a, they, Luke talks about more women than Matthew does. Mark doesn't talk about resurrection at all. John spends a lot of time on the resurrection, but the emphasis is on what happened after the fact. Um, here's the deal. There's something to be said about eyewitness testimony. Okay, let's say there's a car accident, and the three of you right there all witness the car accident, but you're standing in different perspectives, right? And you, all three of you come back to me and say, oh my gosh, there was a car accident just outside right after you got done speaking. And I go, what happened? And each one of you, from your perspective, saw different things, right? You saw one person get out of the car. He saw two people get out of the car. You saw a partial head of somebody over here and another person get out of the car. So you say to me, I don't know if this person got really, really hurt. All I saw was a partial head and another person got out of the car. You tell me, no, two people got out of the car and you wouldn't believe it. I can't believe it was such a terrible car accident. And then you tell me, I saw one person get out of the car. All three of you are correct. It's not a contradiction. What you are telling me is what you saw. It's your perspective. A contradiction would occur if you tell me one person got out of the car and you tell me only two people got out of the car and you tell me I think it was just one and a half and the other one's wrong. That's a contradiction. But when Luke talks about his perspective versus Matthew's perspective versus John's perspective and they're telling you this is my emphasis over here, this is my emphasis over here, Luke is gonna talk about the biological Greek aspects because he's speaking to a Greek audience, he's gonna tell them the details that matter to Greeks. Matthew's talking to a Jewish audience, he's gonna downplay the role of women because he doesn't need to talk about them. He's gonna talk about the, girl, or the guys that they went and reported to more. And then you get to John and he's gonna focus on the divinity aspects, which means he's gonna leave out all the superfluous details because that's not the purpose of him telling the story. It's not a contradiction. It's three separate um, eyewitness testimonies. Does that make sense? They all, the they all have the same conclusion. Um, but they never say things like, Mary Magdalene was there in one, and then another one says, Mary Magdalene was not there. That's a contradiction. That never occurs. For this, and one of the questions we get regularly, for example, is like, the beginning of Luke, his genealogy is different for Jesus than the beginning of Matthew. His genealogy is different for Jesus. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no. Why? Because Luke's genealogy he gives is the biological genealogy of Jesus, traced through Mary. It's a different genealogy. Matthew cares about a Jewish audience because that's who he's talking to, so he gives the legal lineage of Jesus through Joseph. Does that make sense? That's why they're different. It matters the context of who's talking to who, where, when, and why. And if one group excludes the possibility of the other group, that's a contradiction. But if that exclusion never happens, all we're getting is different viewpoints of the same event. Great, great. You're my favorite person tonight. Go for it. 
since it came from the women's perspective, and then they reported this back to the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In that case, since they were saying the number of angels and how many women were there, mm -hmm. wouldn't that still be an issue because it's not from the point of vantage point, it's more from they're getting the, the point of view from these women. Yeah. So it's a little bit different from the analogy priorly given. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not all in the same location getting the same report from the women. They're getting varying reports from the women as they come back. Because remember, the primary people that get the report first are Peter. And I think John, the son of Zebedee, I think is the first one. These are people that didn't even write a gospel. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in spite of them being eyewitness testimonies to the risen Jesus, were not eyewitnesses to an empty tomb. Nobody was there. They're hearing about this event after the fact and writing down what happened. Right? Have you ever, you ever thought about that? Nobody was physically at the tomb when the tomb burst open and here comes Jesus. They weren't there. They're home. So we're automatically getting reports from the first people that arrived on the scene after the fact. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not hanging out in the house together waiting for the women to come back and they all received the same report. That's not what happened at all. They're receiving differing reports from differing people that may not have been the women at all. It may have been Peter that told the story. Does, you understand? Okay. I don't, we don't know. I don't know who told them. Yes. I hear you saying, if I'm correct, is there's a corroboration between all of those. It's just like a police officer that goes to a crime scene and there's multiple witnesses. We separate the witnesses immediately right. to get a different version, to get what they saw, what they, you know, how they exactly. viewed things. Then we take all of those witnesses' information, pull it together to get hopefully a factual mm -hmm. uh, set of circumstances. Uh, according to the events that actually happen, mm -hmm. each one may be a little different in some, because of like what he was saying, right. their vantage point. They saw something from a little different uh, angle that might say something a little bit different than the other person. Uh, and I'm going to use a really probably a, a, maybe a bad analogy, but look at your football replays. Yeah. Look at how many times they look at the different angles to what, may have happened. Right. And I think this is what we see in the Bible where these uh, writers have taken, you know, and right. put down what they heard at the time from those witnesses. Mm -hmm. And then we look at it like you were saying, mm -hmm. laying all this out. It, it goes in, in order and it right. fits. Right. And that's the important thing. It fits. It, right. it, it doesn't there's not a totally different over here versus a totally different over here. Right. It's very close, um, but, but again, it's from a different perspective. Exactly, and the corroboration is what matters because when you think about it, if you were gonna make this story up, wouldn't you get everybody together and have everybody get their story straight? You see what I'm saying? These are real people telling you what they experienced. There's going to be differences because they're just telling you the truth about what happened to them and what they believed and who they saw and here's who I was with and here's what they told me. You know, what would be fishy is if we got all of these books together 
and it was just perfect all the way across, no differentiations, right? Because the story is getting made up. But in our case, it's not getting made up. Does that answer your question? I can't tell. You're really good at the stone face, like, I'm just making sure. Yes. a certain way, and mm-hmm. we all see it different, but it's all the same. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's all God inspired, so True. Is there anything that would allow it to be contradictory? In, in the... Oh, I don't think I need to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. It's all God inspired, right. so... Everything in there is the Cohesive. word of God, and it is truth. Yes. And so there's just no other answer. Yeah, I how mean, could... It, it, it's God-inspired. Exactly. And, and he that's, already chose those people to write the accounting of right. it. Right. And if we had major contradictions, we would have to start questioning the inspiration part. That's part of the reason why that's such a crucial element to the scriptures, because that's a big claim to say that God is the ultimate author of this entire thing. Contradictions would be a huge deal. We don't have any. That's even more of an emphasis on how truthful it is. Yeah, one of the best things, if you have somebody in your, in your life that says, look at all these contradictions in the Bible, the best thing you can say is, show me one. I hear it all the time. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, so if the resurrection is such, if the story doesn't work without that, why is it not included in Mark? Mm. Good question. So from what we understand of Mark, there are two answers to that question. Number one, Mark is the earliest, and he was trying to get the story out the fastest, which means he wrote down everything he could. And in one argument, it says he wrote it all down before the resurrection happened. Okay, that's one of the arguments. Um, the, another one says that Mark is the reason why Mark has that really weird detail. It's the only place anywhere in the Bible when Jesus gets arrested and he says, and there was this boy and he got his cloak torn off of him and he takes off running in the garden of Gethsemane. It's real weird. It's because Mark is putting him, he's like, that's me, I'm the little boy. And so Mark's gospel is, we know that Mark traveled with Peter and that Mark's gospel is less of a, I'm going to write this whole big story out for you to read, and more of him recording Peter's speeches, because Peter doesn't write a gospel. And so Peter is emphasizing to the Jewish audience what they need to hear, and hence Mark doing what he's doing. Um, The third example is that Mark did have a resurrection account that has been lost. We just don't have it. I don't know if that's true. I wouldn't put any value on that because obviously we don't have it. Um, but as far as we know about Mark, what he was doing was repeating and writing down what Peter was talking about. And so we just didn't get, by the time Mark gets published, we just didn't get that material. Depends on how you look at it. I have a question, because one of the things you said kind of stuck out to me. In the genealogy, 
if Jesus was born divinely, so go back to that because with the, I was oh, that's one thing that always stood out to me is why do we have the genealogy of Joseph mm-hmm. if he had no bearing on Jesus' conception? Right. So just say that one more time because that threw me off. What just you said? Legal inheritance didn't have to be biologically derived. So if you're tracing, if you care about from a Jewish audience why Jesus would have any authority whatsoever and from a Jewish perspective, you need to trace through the Father because that's all, the, that's all they ever traced through. So when Matthew gives Jesus a genealogy, he gives his legal inheritance through the line of Joseph as his adopted dad. Whereas when you look at Jesus' biology through the line of David, which is something that has to be established, the line of David comes through Mary, which is why Luke gives that lineage. Both had to be established, yep. Well, you can establish God, but to a Jewish audience who's going to reject Jesus at the outset, you have to establish, this is why you care about this guy. That's what Matthew's doing. Same thing with Luke to the Greeks. No, 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 this is why you care about this guy, because I know what Matthew already established, but I'm going to give you the, you remember how he has to be part of the line of the David? He is. (laughs) That's what he's pointing out. That's okay. I think a lot of people in here did. Yeah, I know. We're right new. That's great. Um, but the scripture says that after um, Jesus was born, that Joseph consummated the, the marriage with Mary. So why wouldn't there be more children? I mean, where did they get that, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. There's a lot of things that Roman Catholicism does that I just think is like, why are you guys even talking about that? Um, there, I would have to do more research. I'm sure there is a reason. I'm sure it comes from somewhere. I just can't tell you offhand where it comes from. Because um, it's the same as true of Mary's mother, they claim that Mary's mother was also had divine elements to her, which is another odd thing that's like, why, where does that come from? And I would imagine the answer probably falls into the tradition of the church somewhere. Because remember, in Catholicism, the scriptures are set equally along the tradition of the church. So one can supersede the other at any given point in time. So I'd have to do more research on that one. I mean, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, right? Yes. So that would mean that everybody from Mary's line would have to have that. So maybe that's why they conclude Mary's mother also maybe. had that. That maybe. way that's it a good, that's, with John good. the Baptist That's also. a good speculation. I don't know. Well, we know they're not right on that, so we don't need to waste time looking it up. We'll just Let's just say when we're going, when I'm going into Roman Catholic circles, I don't focus on that. We focus on the gospel. Um, just a quick question. I've always been kind of confused by this verse. Okay. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 14.34, it says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but they are committed to be under obedience, as also said in the law. Excellent. Are you hung up on the women need to keep silent part? Yeah. 
in the Greek, the keep silent that's translated there is sagao. It doesn't mean complete silence, like zip your lip and never speak at all. It means quiet down. And the reason why that's there is because in Corinth, we were dealing with, remember how you're going through the epistles and Paul's dealing with different issues in different churches that they come back. First Corinthians is actually second Corinthians. And second Corinthians is actually third Corinthians because there was a first letter. And we know that we call it Corinthians A and apologetics. Um, and that's because Paul says in your, in, in the letter I wrote to you previously, right, which is a letter we don't have. And he's dealing with these things. One thing they're dealing with in Corinth, it, Corinth is a whole mess of how do you conduct a church service? Because at the time, it was a really big free-for-all. That's just how they conducted themselves in Corinth. Um, and one of the things was a lot of yelling. And as you've dealt with a female speaker for several months now, if I were to just yell at you constantly about theology, we wouldn't get much done in the church service. And so Paul says, quiet down because it was the tradition of that time for there to be lots of back and forth yelling. So yeah, look if you look at the Greek, it's sagao is the word. Um, I promise I'm not lying to you, so you can look it up. Um, it doesn't mean absolute silence. It means quiet down. It's just we don't have a real great word to translate that in English. Silence is the closest. So this is why it's so important to study Greek and Hebrew. I'm here. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so for issues like this where it says women be quiet or yeah. how to treat your slaves or yes. kill those who are infidels, like people who do not believe, like even if you're in your where family. Where does it say kill them if they're infidels? In Deuteronomy 22. And so in cases like those, okay. I know that people don't do that nowadays. Like okay. people become more, like they interpret the word differently than people in the past, but don't we need to be concerned about how people perceive it and look at those issues and say it's still there because it's more about how it's perceived. People don't always look at the Greek in this case, and so don't we need to look at this culturally as well and how it affects us today? Yeah, absolutely, a thousand percent. In fact, it's one of the weaknesses of the church in America, I, think, I, I believe, is that we are not pointing out the places in the scriptures where we know people are going to have the biggest response. Because obviously in the culture in which we are dealing with right now, in fourth wave feminism, where we have an entire section in Corinthians dealing with women in the church that runs completely contradictory with what our culture teaches, right? And then we just kind of like avoid it. That's part of the reason why I do apologetics is because I think it's really, really dumb to do that. We need to actually deal with these issues. If uh, Do you attend here at the Vineyard at all? Yeah? Okay. Sometimes we do, we do um, Sunday morning services where we cover difficulties in the Bible with Aaron and I. Um, and so that's part of the reason why we do that is because we think that there's a, there's, a, there's a missing element culturally here in America that we need to deal with these things and explain this is what the Greek says. This is how you need to understand this. This is where this context comes from. Why does Paul say this the way that he does? Um, you're dead on, and we need to deal with it more often. And I think a lot of churches, if I can be so bold, avoid it. And I don't think it's smart in the long run. Um, should the Bible be held responsible for 
how it is interpreted, like historically, verses have been used to oppress women or people of color. Um, if those verse, if those verses weren't in there, then, or if they had said instead that um, everyone, if it if it had come against slavery outright, or mm. that women should be treated equally yeah. um, in society. Yeah. Um, why would it not say that and then instead, do you get what I'm saying? I totally do. It's okay. an excellent question. Should the Bible be held responsible for when it's abused by other people based on what it says? Is that what I'm getting from you? When it, when it could have handled this in a way that perhaps makes it easier for us nowadays, that kind of, that kind of feel? Yeah, the answer is no. Um, and I mean that in the kindest way possible. The scriptures speak for themselves, right? And there's a whole, but I do, I do this with my students periodically, it's been a while since I did it, where I go through the scriptures and I start pulling things out of context regularly and I put together a whole presentation that's completely heretical. And I use only scripture to do it. And the reason I do that is because it can be done, and it is done, and it's done regularly. And it's our duty to be able to tell what the context is, to be able to study the scriptures, to read them in their original languages if we need to. That's our responsibility. This is the most important thing we could ever do with our life, ever. Um, if this book is real and true, then there's nothing more important <laughs> than studying it. Um, so do we hold the scriptures specifically accountable for how they're abused by other people? No, we hold the people who are abusing them accountable. For example, slavery. Um, it's brought up regularly that the Civil War, both sides used the scriptures to justify their position on slavery. So what do you do? Is that a moral quandary? Does the Bible support both sides? Is that a contradiction? Of course not. There are only a couple verses that could be taken out of context to be able to support slavery in the scriptures, and it's very easily disproven, versus being something about the, the, um, the freedoms and the intrinsic value of human beings and how you could never enslave them in that way. On top of that, the slavery that's talked about in here is bond servitude. It's not anywhere near the slavery that happened in the early 1800s and late 1700s that William Wilberforce fought against. And with a very minor study of the scriptures, we know that, but people used them to justify what they did. So what's the answer? The answer is study your scriptures. It's, it's, we're sensible human beings. When someone comes to you and says the Bible teaches this, it takes two seconds to verify that that's the case. It's our responsibility to do it. At least that's where I stand on the issue. Does that make sense? <laughs> my husband was watching me was, was watching me struggle with nausea he was like this is why the wives take care of the babies because I mean I would just be like look give me a whiskey I'm done like, I just, I'm, not, I'm not dealing with this <laughs> anyway not to, that's not to um, do too much humor for your question which was an excellent question is that a satisfying answer for you or are you just not a huge fan it's okay if you're not a fan 
I get it, because there are places, especially with the women in ministry issue, which is my primary research topic for my what will be my PhD. Um, I focus in First and Second Timothy and Titus, because um, it's something that's close to my heart and something I don't think has been dealt with well in the big debate in the church, um, where I would like for there to be more clarity that there isn't. Um, but the thing is, every single one of my questions can be answered with what's in here. And I wonder if it isn't the case that God knew what he was doing with that. And that perhaps the people that come after us, if he had been that way with the scriptures, in the case of women and slavery and the things that you brought up, wouldn't be able to point at the scriptures in what they deal with and go, see, we can take this out of context in that way, and it's very clear. Because remember, God cares about all the people that come after us as well, and I don't know what they're going to do. So I think we need to trust what's there. But again, this is something that can be demonstrated over time. That was an excellent question to end on. We are actually over time. Thank you for the honor of your attention. I look forward to whenever I get to see you again. Please be safe. I do. Let me turn this off real fast. That's okay. I'll turn off my mic. Hold on. Uh, I'm a police officer.